Hey, guess what? You found Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer, and over the next 60 minutes, you are going to meet some people who will show you how to get far more out of your life than you ever thought possible. Ordinary people who have made some simple changes that led them down the road towards opening doors to thoughts and dreams that they'd given up on years before. I'm asking you to give us that hour and see what happens. On today's program, you're going to hear from a man with cancer who was told he had 30 days to live. Well, that was 29 years ago, and you won't believe what he's done with his life since. Also, she's beautiful, brilliant, and bipolar. Hear how her story has made her a warrior in the fight against mental illness. And we'll meet a man whose present is all about rediscovering comedy films from the past. And then he's not Paul McCartney, but he is the next best thing. Are you ready? It's time to start growing bolder. What would you think if I told you I've always wanted to hold you? I is that the greatest make-out song of all time. Oh, it worked for me. Friends and Lovers, one of the top hits of 1986. And the woman with that incredible voice has had a tremendous and varied career ever since. She's performed with the Supremes, the Pointer Sisters, and so much more. You know she wrote the theme song to Facts of Life and Different Strokes? I didn't. She starred in the NBC soap Days of Our Lives. She's also spokesperson for Juvenile Diabetes and a certified yoga instructor. She's also the mother of rocker Robin Thicke. And now she's also an author, using details from her life to inspire people to live fulfilled and spiritual lives through her autobiography, Coincidence is God's Way of Remaining Anonymous. Very happy to say hi to Gloria Loring. Hey, Gloria. Hi there. How are you doing? Oh, you're, the book, Coincidence is God's Way of Remaining Anonymous. What a title. Where, where does that come from? Well, that is actually a quote from Albert Einstein. And that, when I first heard it, it was, a, it was a, uh, an experience that came out of coincidence, the coinciding of meaningful events. Uh, my son was diagnosed with diabetes, Brennan, my older right. son, when he was four. And then I joined the cast of Days of Our Lives, and he said to me, Mama, when are my shots going to be over? And, you know, I couldn't say never. So I said, I don't know, honey, but I'm working on it. Anyway, long story short, I get on Days of Our Lives. I notice the actors trade recipes, and I come up with this fundraising idea. Oh, I'll do a Days of Our Lives cookbook. And fast forward a year, I've got everything ready to go, ready to go to the printer, and I have no money to print the book. I need $40,000. And 24 hours before I met the benefactor who helped pay for the printing, a little card that said, expect a miracle, showed up mysteriously in my dressing room. Now, to this day, I don't know who put it there, but I have it framed on my office wall. And it was when I was telling this story about expect a miracle and the benefactor and the printing the cookbook, etc., to someone like you, an interviewer, and I said, isn't that an amazing coincidence that 24 hours before I meet the man who gives me the money, I get this card, expect a miracle? And he said, yes, but you know coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And I said, whoa, whoa, <laughs> wait a second. I got to write that down. <laughs> that is so cool. It was actually almost 20 years later that I found out that it was Albert Einstein who said it. But in the years after that first Expect a Miracle coincidence, I had a series of coincidences that unfolded, so much so that I became more and more fascinated with the subject. And so my book is really about sharing my life story along with information about what coincidence is, where it comes from, how it works in our lives, and how we participate in its appearance. You know, and when you talk about sharing your life story, Gloria, you, you listen to, you sing Friends and Lovers, and in our, in our mind's eye, we want to think of someone whose life is as smooth as a, as a quiet lake, but you really come from a rough background. Uh, uh, there was alcoholism involved, and, you know, you recently talked about sexual abuse as well. How does somebody turn out to be like you? Um, grace, uh, love, um, incredible people coming into my life, um, the inner power for healing that we all possess. Um, my, my, my childhood wasn't 
rough in some ways. I mean, there was a lot of love. There was dysfunction. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, as you mentioned, there was what I, I politely uh, uh, term uh, inappropriate sexualized contact with my father when I was very young. And all of these things propelled me actually in a good way because they were obstacles. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to feel beautiful. And so I went out in the world trying to find my place. And so that actually was a good thing in a way. You know, there were aspects of it. And those are the aspects that in my book I call the angels of adversity because obstacles come up and sometimes they feel horrible or coincidences. And and we say, well, this is terrible, this is terrible. And then when we get a little further beyond 10, 20 years, we look back and we say, you know what, that guy who was so mean to me made me finally say, enough, I'm never going to have a relationship like this again, or I'm going to find this, or I'm going to, somebody said, you can't sing, and I'm going to say, yes, I can. <laughs> you, you know, so, uh, maybe what happens. These occurrences actually can be helpful. Maybe what happens, Gloria, is maybe the media, you know, whenever we hear of somebody who's turned self-destructive or, or done bad things, they always go, oh, well, see, they came from this background that's very similar to Gloria's. But, but yet you didn't turn to self-destruction. I mean, you even wanted to make yourself better. Well, but there were things along the way. I was, I was on um, uh, Showbiz Tonight last night, and we were talking about Miley Cyrus and Britney Spears and, you know, all this nudity and craziness that sometimes we see on the VMAs, etc. Um, and I said, you know, let those of us who have not had any excesses in our life step forward and really give Miley a good talking to, because yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be one of them. I, I had excesses. I, I went close to the ledge, the cliff, edge of the cliff many times. Um, but something always pulled me back. And I think that... Um, more than any of those things, I wanted to feel good about myself. And so I kept finding, and fortunately I had the way to do that through music. And, you know, so many kids who could get lost, and that's why the loss of music programs in schools is really, really detrimental. Kids who don't want to go to school, but they'll stay because they're in the band, or they'll stay because they're in choir, or, or they're in the acting program. And so they have a creative outlet for their inner fury, for their inner grief, whatever. Um, and that's what it was for me. I had this way to feel good about myself that became more important than any of the self-destructive ways I might have engaged in. Yeah, and the best thing about it is you're sharing it with us because a lot of us have the same feelings. And since you sort of brought it up, did your jaw just drop and hit the floor when you saw that you know the great twerking incident of 013 and think, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> minute. Stay away from my son. Well, you know, I mean, to me, it was his performance, and she was kind of upstaging him. I yeah, mean, think? Performer, I was saying, wait a minute, this is his moment in the spotlight. And plus, you know, for me, I was the innocent in all of this, because I remembered Hannah Montana, yeah. to me, Miley Cyrus. I had not seen any of the um, latest incarnations of this girl. She's beautiful. She's very talented. Um so when she started doing all that really kind of not just racy but raunchy stuff yeah. with the tongue and the ooh, <laughs> you know, I'm going, what this is this is misbegotten. And what I meant by that is, this is not well thought out for what serves the song. When you're in a performance, you're supposed to serve the moment, and she was serving herself instead of serving the song. And so, I was first of all thrown off by her persona. And second of all, by the inappropriateness of what she was doing, considering the song. Yeah, is it is it strange being the mom of somebody who's uh, gotten so famous so quick? <laughs> well, yeah, so quick. He's been working at it for twenty years. Right, right. <laughs> he started writing songs when he was fifteen. Uh, when he was fifteen and a half, one of his first early songs was recorded by Brandy on a triple platinum album. Um, so he's had an extraordinary, by the time he was 21, he had his own half-million-dollar recording studio, and he was working with Christina Aguilera and 98 Degrees and Mark Anthony, I mean, all these amazing people producing and writing songs for them. But to come to this stage of worldwide, you know, notoriety now um, is so good because I was really worried about him, that it might, like what Miley Cyrus happened when he was 16 or 18 or 19, and that he would get so swept up and his head turned by all of that, 
But he's been in the same relationship for almost 20 years with Paula Patton, the gorgeous, fabulous, incredibly intelligent woman I know for 20 years. They've been married. They have a baby. They're, they're rock solid as a couple. So he has all this groundedness in his life now. Um, he still wants to be outrageous and racy and, you know, please. But, um, you know, it's working for him. So who am I to say, say no? And he's a good guy, and that's the fruition of the way his mama raised him. Well, you know what? I did my best. Um, I've been getting emails from a couple people, just a couple, who say, you failed as a mother because your son went on and let Miley and engaged in that. And I say, oh, please. You know, who is in charge of their child after they're 18 or 20? You know, who really can make their child do anything? If they're going to go off on a tangent, I mean, wonderful families have wound up with drug-addicted kids or alcoholic kids, and and nobody knows where that came from. You know, they had good upbringings. So people are going to be who they are. They come here to express certain certain stuff in their life, and and we just do the... We're we're only shepherds as parents. We didn't make them. Mm. They came through us. And all we all we get to do is for a while we get to say no 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 not over there oh no 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 not over there no go over here <laughs> so some, and that's about it somewhere Gloria we we sort of crossed a line I don't even remember where it was but now you you and I are about the same age where we look back and and see things that make a lot more sense in the world is there a growing bolder takeaway from you what can we learn from from the things that you've been through oh I think um, I think radical acceptance. It's a phrase that I shared with a friend of mine whose daughter just left us just last week. Mm. And she was having so much trouble at the end because my sister passed uh, a year ago, and she called, she emailed me and said, please help me understand how you came to peace with Peggy's passing, my sister. And so I talked to her, and I said, look, she said, I feel like if we put a DNR on my daughter, if we don't do everything to prop her up, that we'll be giving up on her, and she never gave up. And I said, honey, there are two things. You will never give up on her spirit, on who she was as a person. Her spirit remains alive in your heart, but there is the acceptance of seeing where her body is, and that it is no longer able to remain a vehicle for her spirit. And I said, that takes much more courage than trying to keep her here because keep trying to keep her here when her body is saying no we're not doing this is only increasing her suffering and yours so radical acceptance gloria thank you for your talent thank you for your energy and your passion the book is called coincidence is god's way of remaining anonymous our thanks to the fabulous gloria loring Next, Paul McCartney, or at least the next best thing. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Bill Schaefer here with Growing Boulder. You know how sometimes the best way to make a change in your life is to take advantage of what makes you different? Well, that's what John Babcock did, and it totally changed his life. You see, since he was young, everybody would tell him how much he looked like Paul McCartney. Well, one day the light bulb finally went off in his head, and the next thing you know, he picked up his guitar and became the top Paul McCartney tribute artist in the country. On stage, he looks exactly like him, and as you're about to hear, he sounds pretty much like him, too. A lot of people love the Beatles, but how many have ever performed as one? Or ever recorded at Abbey Road Studios? Or toured with the cast of Beatlemania? Perhaps the only person in the world who's done it all is John Babcock. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. 
It's a love affair that began at the age of five when he was one of the millions who first saw the Fab Four on The Ed Sullivan Show. Well, she was just 17, you know what I mean. John was fascinated, not just by the Beatles, but by music. His father was an accomplished jazz drummer who introduced his son to the drums at the age of three. And by the time he was 11... He was in the drum corps, finishing up with the prestigious Hawthorne, New Jersey, Muchachos. By the time he was in high school, it was apparent his career would be in music, which is when something else became apparent. Were people telling you you looked like Paul? Oh, yeah, especially at, you know, at the time. I, I got this since I was in high school. You know? That didn't hurt, did it? Being a high school kid and having girls come up and go, hey, you kind of look... better than saying, hey, you look just like Ringo. But he also had the talent and the dream to be a successful recording artist of his own. He'd written quite a few songs, but to record them, as he saw it, there was only one option the most famous recording studio in the world, Abbey Road. It's a mecca for me. I gotta go there. I gotta record there. I mean, most people are happy enough just to go to the crosswalk and walk across the crosswalk, get the picture taken, which is, you know, it's the most famous crosswalk walk in the, in, in the world. Which you, know, you did. Of course, you had to do that. <laughs> Took the shoes off, you know, the whole thing. <clears throat> in great McCartney tradition. But to go there, doing your own music as an artist is just phenomenal. So he went, a number of times. He recorded his own music in the very studio used by the Beatles, but even that wasn't enough, so he made a request. I want to use one of the actual mics that they used, that the Beatles used, that Pink Floyd used when they sang, uh, recorded uh, Dark Side of the Moon in Studio Two. One of the ones that John Lennon or Paul McCartney was sang on. What does your tell you? loved it so much. From 85 to 1995, I did it over a half a dozen sessions there. Every uh, year or two, I'd go over and cut some, if I was working on a new album, I'd say, i got to go to Abbey Road and cut some tracks, you know? There's all the f- four Beatles, plus George Martin, and they're working on Across the Universe. That's in uh, February of 1968. And then this photo. In the exact same spot. In the same spot. Yeah, on we the same out, piece of equipment. Same piece of equipment, same organ, and same Leslie speaker. <laughs> But the only thing he didn't have was the same success. It was all about getting a record deal. I got a record deal. You know, and I quickly learned that there's only one thing worse than not having a record deal is, is having a bad record deal. But avoiding a record deal kept him out of the spotlight until he'd heard of an opening with Beatlemania. They said, hey, you know, come on, we're going to go on and do a tour. You can play Paul McCartney and we're going to go on a 15-city tour. Close your eyes. Played all kinds of, you know, 10, 15,000 seat arenas. Cast of Beatlemania, and I played with some of the original guys that played on Broadway. We went out and did it, and a lot of fun, a lot of fun to do it. But never thought I would do that when I was, you know, 24. Yeah, yeah, or 64. He did over 15,000 shows as Paul over the years to the point where performing as the Beatle had completely taken over. Is it frustrating even now that here we're doing a story on John Babcock but half of it's Paul McCartney questions? No, that's that's a great compliment. It's a wonderful compliment, you know. If you're going to borrow, I'll borrow from the best. Lost upon the window, starting to get light. Another day. This is one of John's originals, called Frost Upon the Window. The McCartney influence is unmistakable, yet it's all John Babcock. No, he never did land that big record deal, but he's still writing, still recording, and still as passionate in his 50s as he was in his 20s. But you handled it with grace, 
Because without stardom, he's still been able to carve out one of the most unique and fulfilling careers in music. You've given people that never had the chance in that fleeting few years in the 60s to see them right. a chance to imagine. Yeah. That, that's where the joy comes in. Whether it be my music or playing somebody else else's stuff. Or doing Paul. Or doing, or doing Paul. To be able to be part of that, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Wow, you know, one of the things I love about him the most, he's not one of those guys that thinks he is the person that he looks like. I mean, he really wants to be John Babcock, but he has great respect for Paul McCartney, and he takes very seriously what he does when he performs as him. Now, John Babcock himself has 12 CDs out of his original music, and he still performs in McCartney Tributes, and John himself composed the soundtrack for a feature film called Four Lane Highway that was put out by New Line Cinema. So I'm sure you're probably curious as to what the guy looks like, go see. Just go to growingbolder.com and put Paul McCartney in the search box. Twice a year, the city of Daytona Beach welcomes an influx of thousands of motorcycle enthusiasts to celebrate Bike Week. From mild to wild, it's a nonstop party in honor of the machines, the people, and the culture that surrounds the thrill of strapping an engine between two wheels. It's an amazing sight to see, especially when you get up close and take a good look at who most of the bikers are these days. And here's more from Cecily Wilson. You know... I don't know what it is about boomers and bikes. Maybe it's that whole born to be wild mantra, or maybe we're all just looking for a little freedom. But more and more people in their 40s, 50s, and beyond are hopping on those Harleys. Just look around at events like Bike Week, one of the biggest gatherings of riders and those who want to become riders. There's an awful lot of gray, and it seems nothing draws the wild out of the mild and the freak out of the meek like a motorcycle. And do you understand that what you're doing, you're smashing the stereotypes that people have of age? Oh, I won't. When I get off the bike, I'll limp and I'll be cramped <laughs> up. My knees are hurt. And then they'll say, look at that old fella. But you get on that bike and you're, you're as cool as anybody out here. No, I'm not very cool, but I love the bike. It's that love for the bike that unites people that otherwise might not have a lot in common. Under the helmet, you'll find everyone from CEOs and company presidents to teachers and television anchors and more who trade in their suits and ties for something a little more, well, rebellious. Bill, I feel like I need to go put on my leather. (laughs) I got to say, Cecily, it must feel very liberating to jump on a bike and take a ride through the country. In Daytona Beach, Biketoberfest happens every October and Bike Week takes place in March. Check it out if you get the chance. Up next, how Laurel and Hardy films of the past have given one man a whole new future. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder, and I'm Bill Schaefer. Our next guest has been a film fanatic ever since he was able to read. But all in all, he was leaving a pretty normal life for a 12-year-old kid until his dad did something 
that changed everything. He brought home a 16-millimeter movie projector, which started him on a passion that would last a lifetime. He started to collect Laurel and Hardy films, and he just couldn't get enough. And then his interest expanded to other comedies, pre-code Hollywood, social dramas of the 30s and 40s, and more until now... He's got over a thousand films in his archive, and he's dedicated himself to introducing the magic and the memory of these great old treasures to whole new generations. He is Lou Sabini. How are you, Lou? I'm doing great, Bill. How are you today? You know, your your story re- really touches me because I, I I think films are not just entertainment, but they're they're historically important. They really tell us who we are and where we've been, and there's nothing that they didn't deal with back then that isn't relevant today. Oh, yes. Uh, you learn a lot about history just by watching old movies, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I think my kids in particular uh, learned about uh, Shakespeare and Dickens and Jane Austen just by watching these old classics, movies like Pride and Prejudice and David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities. That's how they learned all about uh Ameri- you know, about literature. Yeah, I, I used to say that there's nothing that's happened to me in life that I couldn't relate in some way to the Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you live quite a weird life, don't you? <laughs> yes. Pipe down, you knucklehead. Uh, so so the, here's the big issue, though. Like you mentioned your kids. Why is it that so many younger people have this aversion to watching anything in black and white? Yeah, I, I, I really don't know. You know, it, it's, it's because they're not being exposed to it any longer. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know, these movies were always on TV. You'd come home from school and you'd be watching Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges and our gang and seeing all these great cartoons. And uh, now they're no longer on television. I mean, the only uh, place you could really see Laurel and Hardy is on Turner Classic Movies. And, you know, you're lucky if you get one of their films a month. And, uh, you know, the same thing with uh, any black and white movie. They're no longer on television. So kids just think these things are so old. There's so many choices on cable, too. I mean, they have so many different channels that people could watch. And, you know, this just doesn't interest kids. But one thing I've got to say about kids, once they are exposed to it and they sit down and they get through the first ten minutes of the movie, they are hooked. And uh, my kids, well, I mean, my kids, they're, you know, one is 34, right. the other one's 30. Uh, they love the old films. My son, who's an avid moviegoer, has said to me, gee, Dad, uh, I, I think the old movies are better than the new stuff. He said they made better movies back then. And speaking of my son, I've got to tell you a funny story. When he was in high school, uh, his teacher, his English teacher, was going to show a movie that was filmed in our my hometown of Stanford, Connecticut. It was called Boomerang, directed by Elliot Kazan. And my son raised his hand. He said, oh, yeah, I've seen it. And his teacher, Mr. McWilliams, said, no, Michael, uh, you've never seen this. This is not the Eddie Murphy movie. And my, said, so my son said, no, no, this is the one directed by Elliot Kazan. It's based on an actual story about a priest who was murdered in Bridgeport, Connecticut. <laughs> And he just, the teacher just flipped out. And he said, how did you ever see that? And he said, well, my dad's got a 16-millimeter print of it. <laughs> Lou, can you help people you know, listening now who may, you know, maybe they go by Turner Classics Channel and skip it every once in a while or watch 10 minutes of a movie? Why is it important? Why do you still watch Laurel and Hardy when in the MTV generation it seems so slow? Or why are you interested in these pre-code movies or the Hal Roach studio days? Wow, uh, that's that's quite the question. Why am I still? Why am I interested? Yeah, why in this? should we? Why should we care? Why should we continue to have, you know encourage our kids to watch? Why should we ourselves be curious enough, uh, curious well, enough know, to look it, back? It, it's our it's our heritage. It's our film heritage. It's history, and I think history is very important to uh, the younger generation. Definitely, and. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by going back to the silent era and just looking at movies. Gee, my, my, my grandparents probably saw this film, or this is how they lived back then. And it's, it's, so, it's such a far cry to the way we live today. And, but it, it just interests me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm into history. 
So uh, I guess that's why old movies do fascinate me so. And especially silence, because the difference with a silent that people don't get is you can't wash the dishes at the same time. You can't talk on no. the phone. You can't text. You're, you have to watch the screen. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, that's your world. You're in that film with those actors. Yeah. You're, you're, you're totally immersed into it. Um, you know, I mean, watching a silent movie is a totally different language. It's a totally different experience than watching a new movie. As a matter of fact, watching a recent movie today is a totally different experience from watching a movie made in the 30s and 40s. Mm. So, you know, you have to acquire that language. You have to learn that language. When I was, do, when I was a um, film critic a few years ago, I... Um, you know, I went to the, you know, I, I never really go to the new movies, hardly at all. And when I was asked to be a film critic, I kind of thought, geez, can I really do this? And I went to the movie, and I was just blown away by all the noise and explosions. And, you know, I mean, I, I thought, oh, my gosh. And everything was so fast compared to what you see in a movie. I thought characterizations were, were quite weak. Of course, there are exceptions. I mean, there are some very good new movies being made. But it is a totally different language. And, I mean, kids trying to sit down to a silent movie, that would be kind of rough. I think the best way to expose kids to a silent movie is to show them something with Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or Charlie Chaplin or somebody like that. They seem to really veer toward comedy. And, Lou, for the growing bolder part of this interview, how has this, you know, how have you been able to follow your passion to the point where you're considered one of the most knowledgeable experts in the country that's 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 got to be great for you. Well, you know, it, it's it's funny because um, my background, I, I did go to school for film history. Um, one of my, my my college professor and my mentor was William K. Everson, yeah. who's a noted film historian, archivist. Um, you know, he he was just incredible. And but I was pretty much stuck in the furniture retail world for many many years, thirty three years, because my family had a furniture store. Uh, here in my hometown. And in 2006, my wife said to me, she said, you know, I think I've had it being home alone all the time. You're always working. She said, you're burnt out. Why don't you pursue your passion? And I did this, and it's just grown and grown. And it's grown in leaps and bounds the past year. This this past year has been incredible for me. Uh, As a matter of fact, I was in uh, L.A., last week filming a documentary on the 100th anniversary of the beginning of Hal Roach Studios. And I was also a guest at Cinecon. And, you know, in a, in a few weeks, I'm going to be uh, master of ceremonies and hosting the Stanford Jewish Arts and Film Festival. <laughs> so I have been very busy. I have a book that I, uh, I have written, and I'm trying to get it published. It's called They Were Expendable Exposed, and it's about the filming the location shoot of the John Ford classic, They Were Expendable, which starred Robert Montgomery, John Wayne, and Donna Reed. It's incredible that the films of the past have given you a present and an excitement about the future. Folks, you can learn more about the man, some of the projects he's been working on by checking out his website, lusabini.org. Great topic, great conversation, Lou. Thanks. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Up next, a rare and raw look into life with mental illness. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Bill Schaefer, hosting a very challenging program called Growing Boulder. Challenging you to look at your own life in a whole different way, to step up and deal with the obstacles that we all inevitably have to face. Now, some are more difficult than others, but none are as isolating or humbling as a mental illness 
Our next guest went down a deep, dark rabbit hole of her own and nearly destroyed her, but not only has she emerged on the other side, she has bravely opened her life, the highs and the lows, to try to enlighten all of us on how to deal with mental illness. She's an attorney, a UN global expert, a television commentator, a newspaper columnist, and the author of a fantastic book called Haldol and Hyacinth, A Bipolar Life. Let's say hi to Melody Moisey. Hey, Melody, how are you? I'm great, Bill. How are you doing? Well, your story is, is incredible, and I guess it starts when you were a teenager. And what, what happened, Melody? All of a sudden, it seemed like you went completely off the deep end. How, how far out there did you get? Uh, you know, it took a while. I started dealing with depression when I was in high school, probably around 16 or 17. Uh, and I just thought it was, you know, adolescence. Everyone around me thought it was adolescence. I thought normal teenagers considered suicide. I thought that was completely normal. Um, and it wasn't. It turns out it wasn't, that most teenagers don't. Uh, and I didn't find that out until later on, and it wasn't something I obviously shared with people. But eventually I went to college. I, was, I started dealing both with depression and with mania, and it took 10 years for me to get a proper diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which is actually within the average, the average time of misdiagnosis for people who have bipolar disorders is between eight and 10 years. Uh, and part of that has to do is because we don't go see doctors when we're manic because we feel good. And part of it has to do with uh, some psychiatrists need to get better at diagnosing manic depression. Well, and don't you, isn't there part of it, a feeling on the, on the inside that, man, I should be able to get over this myself. For sure. Yeah. And you know, I'm a person of faith. I believe in God. I believe in angels and all of that wonderful stuff. Uh, but at a certain point, I mean, I started having hallucinations and delusions, and I don't even drink alcohol, you know. So at some point, you need to realize that this is a real illness uh, and start treating it. And in that sense, I was very lucky in that both my parents are physicians, so they immediately recognized this is a real illness that needs treatment, and they took a scientific approach to it. Uh, at the same time, though, they were worried about me speaking publicly about having uh, mental illness because they thought I'd lose credibility, like a lot of people might think. Uh, but thankfully, that I, that really didn't end up happening. I lost credibility, I'm sure, in some circles. But where I kept it and where I gained it is in circles where I'm happy I did. And I've met a lot of amazing people since writing the book and starting to speak openly about living with a mental illness. Now let's talk a little bit about Haldol and Hyacinth. I, I don't really get the tie-in with Hyacinth. Can you can you go into that a little bit? And, and man, what, what what did you do in this book, Melody? Because people are flocking to it and saying that, man, why aren't other books exposing mental illness in the same way? Um, well, the, first of the hyacinths, uh, I'm originally from Iran, hyacinths represent rebirth uh, in the Persian New Year, the first day of spring. And on our spread that we have, we call it seven S's, half seen. On the half seen spread, we have uh, sombol, which is a hyacinth. Another thing about hyacinths is they never grow straight. You always have to get them to try and... Uh, grow evenly and straight up, but they never do. They always lean one way or another. Uh, so in that sense, I thought it was somewhat uh, symbolic of what I was going through. But in terms of the book, I really appreciate you saying that, but I, I think it's just being honest in, with regards to something that most people are not honest about. And I don't look fantastic. I don't look good. In a lot of the book, there are places I don't look so great. <laughs> Um, and that's because I wasn't feeling so great. And the honesty, I think, is what a lot of people have told me has drawn them to the book. You know what's unusual about this, Melody? Not not only, I mean, you're looking at it from your perspective, but you can have a really close friend, and if you hear they have a mental illness, the tendency is to want to run away or, or leave them alone or not go near them or, or not know what to say. What do you say to a friend who, who you know, who you find out has been diagnosed with bipolar Thank you so much for asking that. Uh, I think the most important thing is not to change who you are or how you interpret that person or how, you know, people become nervous about, oh, I can't tell jokes. I use the cra word crazy all the time. I have no problem with it. Uh, I'm the, still the same person, you know, I think. And I had that problem, too, when I was diagnosed. I thought, you know, maybe I've changed. This label has been put on me. Maybe I'm not, you know, as capable as I thought I was. Maybe I need, need to lower my expectations for my life. But the one thing that really got me through more than anything was my husband, when I came out of a psychotic break and got, had gone through so much, I told him, you know, we'd been married for almost 10 years, and I said, you know, you didn't sign up for this. You can leave. And he said to me, you know, you've been crazy since day one. I knew you were crazy when I married you. 
Uh, and the point is he made me realize that I haven't changed. You know, I'm still the same person, but now I know what is wrong, and now I can get treatment. So if anything, things got better. Now, for a crazy person, Melody, uh, judging from that intro, you've done pretty good with your life. I mean, maybe it's been a, uh, you know, I'm joking around that it's been a help. But how have you been able to, uh, it sure doesn't seem like it held you back. Yeah, well, you know, to a certain extent, it's helped me. Um, I have, my brain can go places people, other people can't. Um, And in that respect, I think there's really something beautiful about neurodiversity, having people with brains that are different solve problems. You know, there's some things that I may be capable of because my brain can go places so-called normal people can't that other people are not. There might be something that someone with autism is capable of, some solution that they're capable of finding that I'm not because my brain doesn't go where theirs does. Uh, And I think we need to see value in that. That doesn't mean we don't treat mental illness and try and um, ameliorate, you know, the negative effects, but we also need to accept that there is something positive and there is value in this so-called disorders uh, that we're so quick to label. Great, great, great point. Hey, listen, in our last 30 seconds, what's the takeaway? What can we learn from what you've been through? My hope is that uh, people will have more compassion for others living with mental illness and for those living with a mental illness in particular to say to them that you don't need to lower your expectations for your life. You are not only capable of ordinary things, you are capable of extraordinary things. We need to start telling people with mental illnesses that they can uh, in a world where so often we're told that we can't. Melody, what an awesome speaker you are. I mean, I can understand why people are flocking to you. I mean, and I love, you know, instead of mental illness, if we called it uh, that phrase you said earlier, neurodiversity. What, what, a, <laughs> yeah. what a great uh, boost that would give uh, a tough disease. And I want to let people know you can learn so much more at her website, Melody Moisey. That's M-O-E-Z-Z-I dot com. And check out that book, Hal Dahl and Hyacinth. Great conversation with Melody Moisey. Up next, he was told he had 30 days to live. Well, that was almost 30 years ago. Wait till you hear what he's done with his life. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Bill Schaefer back with you and ready to introduce you to yet another guest with an incredible story whose life was changed forever because of cancer. Yep, because of cancer. In fact, his was so advanced and so far along that his doctor came to him at one point and said, I'm sorry, but you've got about 30 days left to live. And that was nearly 30 years ago. Not only did he not die, but he's gone on to become one of the world's greatest wellness pioneers, creating one of the largest and most important cancer organizations in the world. It's called the Cancer Recovery Foundation International. Let's meet Mr. Greg Anderson. How are you, Greg? Hi, Bill. It's great to talk to you, and uh, you know, you're, you're being way too kind in all your accolades. We're just simple people trying to do... Uh, I think profound things. Yeah, and isn't and I guess that's my message to the growing bolder uh, audience is that uh, you know simple things done well make big differences. And if I can communicate anything, that would be what I'd try to communicate today. Yeah, let's let people know how you did that and kind of what happened. You started off your story was similar to I guess millions of other cancer victims right up to the time that your doctor told you you had a month to live because at that moment instead of packing it in you started to seek out every survivor that you could find who had been told the same thing and and what happened? Well that's it Bill. Uh, By the way I just have to start by saying One of the questions people ask me most often is, when did you realize you would live more than 30 days? 
And my answer is always the same. On the 31st day. <laughs> right, and you don't take anything for granted, do you? It was touch and go. Actually, it was touch and go for several months. We started talking to survivors. What did you do? How did you get through this? And it started actually from my deathbed where people thought I went was put to die. And over the uh, months, over the weeks and months, we started to see these patterns of, of things that people did. Certainly, let me make this clear, medical care ranked right at the top of the list. So don't misunderstand my next comments. But the most important thing beyond medical care was nutrition. And the next thing was exercise. I couldn't believe these things. Now, what, and, do, what, uh, do you mean, what do you mean exercise? If, you, if somebody tells you you have 30 days to live, are you start, supposed to start doing the bench press? <laughs> I can tell you that that uh, the whole issue of exercise, exercise, Bill, it's like a live signal to the body. When I started, I actually sat in a chair and did the backstroke movements with my arms. I'd do 10 forward, and then I'd change the direction, do 10 backward. That's about all I could do. At one time, I was so weak, down to 112 pounds and actually on morphine at one point to control the pain, but I said, I can at least do some of these things that other survivors are doing. Diet, that was another thing. And there's no one diet that we found, but we found moderation in diet was the key. And uh, one of the, in one of the books I've written, I say it in summary, I say, a little with quiet is the only diet. Wow, and that's that's a, it's a profound message. But but uh, don't simple, don't don't you want to not eat a thing though when you're when you're you know being you're going through chemo, you're going through radiation, you can't keep anything down. The last thing you want to do is eat it all. Well, simple little ideas make big differences. So things in terms of diet, uh, a shift to a more plant-based diet as opposed to uh, the meats. And uh, particularly an emphasis on vegetables, that was the key. And those, that sort of diet, that was something that engendered uh, wellness in me. And I was able to keep that down without uh, much problem. The exercise, simple things like uh, uh, finally got up to doing a walk, those are the simple things that make a big difference. And that's the message I just want everybody to know, whether you're going through life-threatening cancer, or you're just trying to bring more esprit, more joy into your life, simple things done well, done regularly, make the big difference. Something else you've done, Greg, really well is you've taken the focus off of the cancer itself and put it on the whole person. Well, health is more than health care. And, you know, let me ask uh, our, our, our listeners, who's the most important uh, person on your health care team? Many people say that, oh, it's a doctor, or it's a nurse, or it's a technician. No, it's you. And the whole idea of, you know, putting the focus on creating wellness as, to, as opposed to just treating the illness, it's a key. It's one of those simple ideas. So engendering wellness as opposed to simply treat, 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 that's really required for long-term survival, not just from cancer, but for, from everything. So, Greg, it's almost 30 years since you were told you had 30 days to live. How, how are you feeling? Do you, do you still worry about a recurrence, or, or how, where are you now? You know, I stay in day-tight compartments. Day-tight compartments are important. And uh, this idea of, of uh, living in day-tight compartments, certainly I take care of myself, and it's not that I don't plan for the future, but living here, now, joyfully, that's the key. And uh, I don't know how many days I've been given, but uh, now, almost 30 years later, it's amazing that uh, what a doctor, what a surgeon said in his medical opinion, in fact, is something that uh, I, surgeons treat, they don't heal. Hmm. And I, I would just suggest that for all of us, the idea of uh, maintaining daytime compartments, doing small things well, that's the key 
No, it's not only to health, but to life. Well, what great points. It's easy to see, Greg, why your books are so popular, why people seek you out, and why your words of wisdom really connect with so many people. The organization, folks, you really need to look into this group. It's called Cancer Recovery. Org. Now, Greg's written a number of incredible books about the fight against cancer, and it's from the perspective that you heard him talk about today. It's a whole-body approach, a whole-patient approach to give you the best possible chance to fight against a terrible disease. And you can check them all out at greganderson.org. We sure appreciate the time we've got to spend with Greg Anderson. Thanks, Greg. Well, that's it for now. But do remember, Growing Boulder does not stop here. In fact, it's just beginning. You'll find hundreds more interviews just like the ones you've heard today with TV stars, movie stars, rock stars, sports stars, authors, business leaders, medical experts, wellness experts, financial experts, travel experts, and regular people who found their way to living exciting lives. Because, folks, Growing Bolder is for everybody, and you'll find out more at growingbolder.com. You'll also find information there on where to watch Growing Bolder television and how to subscribe to Growing Bolder magazine. So until next time, we have one question for you to ask yourself. How are you growing bolder? Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Stand side.